Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. From the state of nature that is Bethel University, I'm Chris Moore. You're listening to Election Shock Therapy. How's it going? It's going. I was thinking more like um, the world of international relations is like state of let, nature. Let know? me let me tell you, this is both red and tooth and claw and, and all that. So both, both figurative and literal. So let me explain. Mm. I was leaving uh, Bethel the other day. It's a it's a you know it's a Minnesota spring, which means it could be seventy five and or it could be uh, a of snow, and this was somewhere in between. And I was just driving my car through our lovely wooded campus, and. I saw like a small group of students kind of gathered just off the sidewalk um, on, the, on a green hillside. And I kind of slowed down because anytime some group of people is gathered to look at something, you also must by law stop and look at that too. <laughs> and as I got close, I saw what they were looking at, which was this huge red tailed hawk, which was sitting on the ground. It wasn't sitting. It had from the air absolutely poached a rabbit. And it, was, and it was not a small rabbit. Like this thing had wow. come out of the air, grabbed this rabbit on the ground, and was in the midst of feasting upon it in all of its nature gruesome glory. And wow. so there was a small group of students and me watching this as this uh, hawk uh, tore into this now deceased rabbit. Um, <laughs> and we're going to talk a little bit about international relations today. And so th this seemed like a good, like, just a reminder that Hobbes told us that without the state, uh, we exist in the state of nature. And perhaps between international relations, in, in between countries, there exists some some bit of that state of nature. So as we talk about various countries today, be thinking about that hawk tearing that bunny limb from limb. That's where we're going today. <laughs> I love it. Th Chris, this might be like the best intro story to set up our conversation for today. I, I am you. all here for some state of nature. I, I like this. Well done. Well done. Stop. So, Matt, do you want to drive this ship? <laughs> want to do what? I said, I said, do you want to drive this ship? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, yeah. So, since this is a, an IR, you know, international relations themed um, themed podcast, which we don't normally do, um, I thought it'd be appropriate if. Um, I did less talking and Chris did more talking and I asked more questions. I mean, I have thoughts. I've been sort of doing my homework on this because because this is definitely not sort of my wheelhouse. And um, so we're kind of just going to, we were talking about, you know, what, what I'm going to talk about in the podcast earlier this week. And I was saying like, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that are heating up right now. We have Israel and Iran. We have, I mean, just the announcement this week that the U.S. is going to withdraw troops from, from Afghanistan by, um, you know, September 11th, 2021, 20 years after the 9-11 attacks. Yep. Um, things are heating up between Ukraine and Russia. Um, there's stuff going on in Taiwan, all sorts of stuff going on with China. So there's a lot to talk about. And like, you know, we should ask Dr. Moore to weigh in on these, these, um, these hefty subjects. So, so we're just going to kind of do a tour around the world. And I thought maybe we should start out with Israel and Iran. Um, so I'll, I'll say a few quick preliminary things to set us up. Sure. And then Chris, you can just sort of take it away. So, um, so the U.S. has resumed talks with Iran in Vienna this week. And basically the, the question is whether or not um, there's going to be sort of a, a revival of of the nuclear agreement that was sort of um, ended summarily by the Trump administration, sort of pulled out. And so, yep. 
um, sort of while these talks are going on, there's an explosion over the weekend in one of Iran's nuclear facilities, and Israel is suspected to have caused the explosion. And um, so that's sort of throwing a monkey wrench into some of this. Um, Iran is demanding the removal of all sanctions before they decide to re-enter the deal, um, which would theoretically place some limits on um, nuclear fuel enrichment. Um, meanwhile, the U.S. has um, basically withdrawn some support for Saudi Arabia, Arabia in the region, including removal of um, Patriot anti-missile batteries defending Saudi Arabia. Um, and clearly Israel is getting very worried about what's going on in Iran at this point because um, they seem to be taking more active active approach to this. So so what's going on in Iran? Chris, do you expect Iran to, um, to ultimately come to the table and the U.S. to give them um, enough concessions to bring them back into the nuclear deal? And furthermore, would that be a good idea? Yeah. All right. So that's a lot going on here. Let me answer <laughs> by starting with just, just a little bit of history for our listeners. So this thing we talk about, the Iran nuclear deal, it's often refer it's more technically referred to as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action or the JCPOA, but no one wants to say JICPOA. So instead, what we say is uh, the Iran nuclear deal. This was negotiated for several years as a high priority item under the Obama administration, finally reaching signature in 2015. And basically what it agreed to was Iran agreed to certain strictures on its nuclear program, including uh, allowing international inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency to come in and verify that they were keeping up their end of the bargain. All, in exchange for that, the Obama administration, along with our European partners and Russia and China, all agreed to essentially drop sanctions on Iran and reintegrate Iran into the global economy. Now, the Trump administration, even before it ran for president, uh, Donald Trump was a, uh, a critic of this plan. He, he saw it perceived as weakness on the part of the United States. And in keeping with a campaign promise, uh, uh, shortly after uh, his, um, becoming president, he uh, initiated the U.S. withdrawal from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action and snapped uh, uh, um, sanctions back onto Iran. Now, there's a little interesting side point here, which is that for, for a time, the Trump administration claimed that they hadn't actually left the agreement because the agreement does contain provisions for snapping uh, sanctions back on Iran if it doesn't keep up its end of the bargain. But basically, none of the other signatories agreed that that is what happened. And so eventually, the Trump administration basically had to acknowledge they were just abandoning the plan. Since that time, and since uh, Joe Biden has won the presidency, there's been some discussion of wouldn't the United States just jump back into the, the plan? And the short answer is it's not nearly that simple for a couple of reasons that all revolve around democracy and different countries' democracies. Um, Joe Biden needs to make sure that he's not perceived as being weak and just walking back into a deal and, and taking the sanctions off of Iran. Some of those sanctions are actually fairly complicated. And so uh, putting them, uh, removing them from Iran to, would take some level of, of uh, strategic effort and some time frame. And since that time, Iran has also changed their posture too. So although our European allies are still really observing the, the comprehensive plan of action, Iran has begun to violate certain components of it. Uh, specifically, one of the deals uh, that Iran agreed to in the, in the plan was that they weren't ever going to um, purify uranium above 10%. And really, you don't need uranium um, purified above 5% really for most nuclear reactors. Now, you could make it in the case that for 10% allows you to do some experimental work with nuclear reactors and nuclear energy, but you basically don't need it to be refined above that. 
to get a nuclear bomb, you need to have it refined roughly around 90% highly enriched uranium. Right now, Iran is preparing to uh, enrich their uranium up to 60%, which really is kind of an odd position. It's a weird signaling thing. And I'll talk more about signaling in a second here. But there's not much you can do with 60% enriched uranium. It's too enriched to use in a nuclear reactor. It's not enriched enough to use for a bomb. Um, it's kind of in this, in this interregnum place where you can kind of try to say, hey, look, we're doing this thing. It's putting us closer to a weapon, but we're not do pulling the trigger on the weapon yet, right? It's a little bit of a um, it's a little bit of a bargaining tactic. At the same time, um, there are other people who also don't want the United States to jo rejoin this deal, specifically Israel. And Matt, you talked about Israel being um, uh, uh, launching a, uh, a clandestine attack on an Iranian nuclear facility. This attack was wild. If you saw the details of this, uh, this this facility, uh, the Natanz facility, which is one of Iran's major nuclear research facilities, um, is underground. It's underground for a reason because Iran has bombed it before, um, and so they put Israel. it in the ground. Or Israel, excuse me, Israel's bombed the Iranian facility before, and so um, Iran put the uh, has basically buried this facility, and so it's 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 essentially bomb proof. But the is Israel the Israelis smuggled in uh, ex an explosive device by hand, essentially, um, into this facility and then detonated it. And what they specifically detonated was the power supply. So this. Um, this facility is not on the Iranian power grid. Um, it's basically has its own independent a power supply and they took it out. And there's estimates that this facility will probably take three to six months to get back to fully operational. It, it's not clear to me sitting here in the United States, whether that's because it's going to take that long to replace the generators or whether the explosion itself took some of their centrifuges offline, but either way um, they're not going to be doing any uranium enrichment for the next three to six months. And go ahead, please. I was going to say, you know, I mean, we don't know for sure that Israel did this, right? It's not. We don't, it's not they have not acknowledged sure. it. However, Benjamin Netanyahu toasted his intelligence uh, minister, <laughs> literally <laughs> toasted him um, in the in the 24 hours after the. Uh, event. Yeah, I mean, as we all suspected, I mean, you, you, you know, like him or love him, you, you, you got to. You got to tip your hat to the Israelis and their um, their intelligence service and their ability to to conduct these these uh, successful clandestine operations. It's mm -hmm. it's really something else. But there anyway, was a, there initially reports that this was a cyber attack because Israel has right. launched cyber attacks against Iranian nuclear facilities in the past. But this appears to have been a good old fashioned um, sabotage. All right. Okay. So, so that, is that ultimately going to undermine the the U.S. talks in Vienna, or is this kind of a sideshow, or does it does this sort of put pressure on the U.S. anyway? Um, what? Why did they choose to do that now, right during the talks? I mean, clearly the Israel Israelis aren't dumb; they do everything for a reason. Oh, right? So why now? Why during the talks? Well, in bargaining theory, uh, which crosses between American politics and, and international relations, we often talk about the role of spoilers. And so, um, imagine if. Imagine if you and your wife and your small child are trying to decide to, uh, when pan the pandemic is over, decide where to go for dinner. And your, you and your wife decide on one restaurant and your, your, uh, let, let's say you want to go to a nice sit down family restaurant and your kid desperately wants a happy meal from the golden arches. Um, <laughs> you have the power, you and your wife literally can drive the car. You literally, and you have the checkbook. You can literally decide to go to a nice sit down family restaurant, but your child can decide to be awful 
at the restaurant <laughs> and make you regret doing it. And if they've done that enough, they can have a credible commitment of I'm going to be a pain if you don't take me to McDonald's, right? And Children have credible threats like that. I'm not suggesting Israel is a child. Israel is very cagey. They're very smart in this whole process, but they are filling the same role, which is a spoiler role. And they're basically saying, we're going to make this, this relationship between Iran and the United States so toxic and so poisonous that there basically isn't room for diplomacy between the two countries. Iran has an election coming up in about six months. And if the Biden administration can't make significant progress, it may become an electoral issue in Iran. And in that, in that case, there may be strong public sentiment not to make a deal with the United States, even though the Iranian economy is suffering from the sanctions. And it seems to be the case that most Iranian politicians outside of the public view would very much like the United States to rejoin the GC JCPOA. It may not happen because of uh, toxic events like the one that Israel helped create. What what is the the sort of current support um, in Iran for for the regime in Iran? Right, um, yep. you know, so there have been economic sanctions, you know, that the U.S. has placed that really hurt the Iranian economy. Um, you know, I've I've read a little bit that there's been some sort of some pushback um, even amongst the Iranian populace, you know, against some of the. Um, some of the expeditionism um, and the nuclear pursuits of the regime. Could you sort of flesh out what's kind of going on in Iranian domestic politics for us? I can, and it's a complex thing. And so yeah. just as there's complex public opinion in the United States, there's complex public opinion in Iran. Um, it seems to be that there is relative public unrest in Iran and has been for some years over the government's inability to grow the economy. Uh, Iran is a cosmopolitan place. Levels of education, levels of literacy are very high. Um, it is a, a cosmopolitan economy, especially in major cities like Tehran. And though I, I think that there is a substantial base of public sentiment who would like to normalize relations with the United States um, not necessarily with Israel. Uh, sentiment against Israel remains very high in Iran, even amongst cosmopolitan elites. But there's also a, a pretty heavy voter base in rural parts of Iran who are much more willing to be um, hardline against uh, and, and very pro patriotic Iran, which sees sort of a acquisition of a nuclear weapon as a as a point of pride. And so there are different politicians appealing to different parts of the Iranian voter base. And Iran is democracy, at least in terms of its presidency. And so presidents are trying to capture different voting blocks here. It's complicated by the fact that the organization which controls Iran's nuclear program is not the presidency. Functionally, Iran has a check and balance system, just like the United States does, but its checks and balances are uh, the clerisy, which controls the Supreme Court, which is functionally authoritarian, it, the military, which controls its nuclear program, and the presidency, which controls a lot of domestic policies and trade policies. But you'd have to get the military essentially to, co to collaborate with the presidency to get any meaningful reform, including rejoining uh, the, the, the JICPOA. In which case, the military is, of course, going to be the, probably the least likely of the three to be interested in rejoining the agreement because that would involve scaling back um, the the development of of the nuclear capabilities. Would that be meaning, meaningful? Meaningful curbs on Iranian nuclear development are going to run into opposition from the military. There, they would be more than happy to come up with a kind of a paper agreement that says that they were not going to pursue nuclear. Um, options as long as they could do so surreptitiously. But if there's real meaningful checks on Iranian nuclear development, it's, it's going to be harder to get the military on board. Yeah. So so how does this all this, 
how does all this play out, Chris? Because, I mean, there's so there's been some criticism of the JCPOA um, for basically um, enabling Iran, right? And in, in that sort of the U.S. has been taking this approach to Iran, which has basically allowed Iran to sort of string the U.S. along and sort of gradually, you know, year by year, decade by decade, build up its its capacity, right? Yeah. And that basically the JCPOA has not dealt seriously with Iranian um, um, sort of violations of of, of the gr agreement, right? Um, so just recently I was reading that the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is part of the, the UN, discovered yep. evidence of secret nuclear development sites in Iran in at least three locations, possibly up to nine, that Iran hid, right? Yep. They're not supposed to do that, right? So, so you know, and, and clearly, you know, we know that Iran is involved in sort of supporting um, sort of regional um, proxy organizations um, to sort of you know, expand its own influence. So Iran clearly seems to be an untrustworthy actor. Um, can a renewed JCPOA of some sort um, truly deal um, effectively um, with with Iran on the, on sort of you know, in its behavior, um, can we? Is there any sort of deal in which Iran will f will find it in their interest to really comply with, or are yeah. they going to just use this as a as a way to continue to string the U.S. along? That's a good question. So the answer, I think, is there is such a deal. The question is whether we can get there or not. And there's a couple of mm -hmm. constraints. Like I said, there's a there, there are elections coming up um, in Iran, and that could make this into a political issue. If the, if the Biden administration is able to effectively dangle essentially a reduction in the sanctions, that could actually induce Iranian politicians to want to get to the table to reap benefits from it in, in time for the election. But what would have to, what the Biden administration would also want to string into this, and which is why, by the way, the Biden administration has been perceived as being kind of slow in terms of making any deals with Iran. They've kind of is they they really aren't interested in just rejoining the deal as it previously existed because Iran has moved the goalposts in the time the Trump administration backed out. So there would need to be a revisitation of things like how much a nuclear enrichment could happen, what kinds of um, abilities the IAEA has to enter the country and do surprise inspections, how frequently those inspections occur. And I could imagine the Biden administration would want to move some of those goalposts. Um, and the question is between the United States and its desires to to uh, to get more strictures on Iran and Iran's desires to get the sanctions lifted, you've got our European allies that are essentially literally doing shuttle diplomacy between the two countries in Vienna and trying to come up with see if there's some kind of middle window. I think both I think we actually probably will get there because it's in both countries' interests. Iran probably wants the sanctions gone more than they want to nuke in the short term. And the United States wants to have more insight into Iran than it wants to exacerbate the situation. What I'm worried about is what happens after Biden. Let's say that um, Joe Biden is runs for re-election in 2024. He's defeated by Nikki Haley. Um, does this become a, a Republican-Democrat issue? And is, does Haley immediately withdraw from a new JCPOA just because she's a Republican? That's what I worry about. Uh, the United States benefits when its parties can agree on bipartisan treaties and agreements. And in an increasingly polarized world, that's hard to agree to.
Yeah, this is this is something that I discussed in in my institutions class recently. Like, um, you know, regardless of your issue on you know your your approach to various foreign policy issues, which are all very complex, right? And oftentimes there's not sort of clear cut and dry answers. We can agree that it's generally better if sort of U.S. foreign policy is stable, right? Yep. <laughs> um, which a lot of times it's not, right? And sort of in theory, the idea is that the Senate would have a stabilizing influence on the presidency and on foreign policy, right? There's all sorts of interesting Federalist Papers on that. Sorry, I just had interest. It, oh, I got it. the Federalist Papers in a discussion on IR, but but that was one of the original ideas behind the Senate being so involved in sort of in the the foreign policy process as they're supposed to ratify treaties. But but now we don't really get the ratification of treaties as much, and the Senate is still very important, but not nearly as involved. And so, you know, basically, U.S. foreign policy hinges almost entirely upon whoever's in the White House, right? Yep. And in these polarized times um, in which foreign policy itself, um, foreign policies can be polarizing, you get these sort of wild swings, um, which creates all sorts of problems and makes the U.S. sort of an unreliable ally um, and um, also allows, you know, um, sort of threats to America to coalesce um, because there's that sort of instability. But, yeah. Uh, we should probably move on from, um, from Iran, unless you have anything else you want to add, Chris. Um, well, keep an eye on this. I, I, I guess uh, one thing I'd like to throw into the at the end here is um, I'm going to try and do this for each one of the topics we cover today. Is why should Americans care? Because I feel like one of the things I'm often doing is uh, when we talk about American electoral politics, when we talk about uh, tax bills or or um, or sort of stimulus packages, things like that, people can understand implicitly, like, oh, this affects my paycheck. Why should Americans care about Iran? Here's why we could care. In the region, Israel is a very close ally for a lot of evangelical Christians. Uh, Israel also has a special place um, the, uh, religiously, even beyond its, its geostrategic importance. There are no other countries in the Middle East that have nuclear weapons besides Israel. If Iran gets them, not only would that be a balance against Israel, which is why Iran wants them, it would also be a balance against other powers the United States is in close relationship with, like Saudi Arabia and Egypt, who also then might be incentivized to get their own nuclear weapons. Saudi Arabia has suggested that if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, they would immediately begin research on one. So this could, if it happens, kick off um, a whole series of nuclear proliferations in the Middle East, which is why we should care. All right. Um, so let's um, let's move. Um, we'll stay within the general region. Let's move on to Afghanistan. Okay, so, so we'll just take one big stride over Iraq from Iran into, into Afghanistan. <laughs> Pretty much. Okay. Um, so the Biden administration, uh, just this week, actually, um, announced a complete withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan by September 11th. Um, yep. Of course, that's a very symbolic date for obvious reasons. Um, there had been some discussion over the past month um, or two about withdrawing troops by May. Um, that has since been kicked down the road by a few months. So currently there are about um, 10,000 troops in Afghanistan. Um, and these are these are sort of troops from the US and its allies. Uh, so the US has roughly 3,500 troops um, in Afghanistan and that number has been more or less stable for, for a little while. Um, and basically the, the withdrawal that Biden has has announced um, is has been explicitly said it will not be conditions based. Yep. Um, the the um, the Taliban, who the U.S. has been in negotiation with, along with uh, with uh, Kabul, um, is not going to have to meet any conditions before the U.S. withdraws. Um, yep. And it turns out that the Taliban and Al Qaeda um, are already touting this as a massive win for them. Um, and essentially there's concern, not only amongst Republicans, but also amongst some on the left that we are going to 
ultimately see um, parts of Afghanistan collapse, um, that even if the, the government in Kabul is able to survive, it will not be able to sort of fully retain control of the country, um, and that you're going to see basically the, the resurgence of of the Taliban and even Al-Qaeda um, in Afghanistan and and once again Al-Qaeda having um, being able to reestablish a safe haven in Afghanistan and ultimately leading to a far bloodier um, sort of civil war than what we currently have in the country. So um, so Chris, um, is this, <laughs> give us a background on this policy and then yep. sort of give us your take on, on is, this, is this a good idea to withdraw yep. US troops? So let me let me first uh, describe the background a little bit, and then I'll talk about. I want to ask you a question, Matt. So okay. here's the uh, um, here's the background. We've been uh, the United States has been involved in Afghanistan for tw uh, twenty years. Um, we started after nine eleven. Uh, we started because the Taliban, which had seized control from the uh, from a democratically elected government, um, but inside Afghanistan, um, was also harboring Al Qaeda forces. That led the United States not only to depose the Taliban, but also then to eventually fight the Al-Qaeda forces that were still stationed in Afghanistan in the Battle of Tora Bora, um, which, which led to essentially the retreat of Al-Qaeda over the border into Pakistan, which is where we eventually found Osama bin Laden. And he has been dead now for nearly a decade. Um, so on the one hand, the question is, what uh, what is our long-term benefit to being in Afghanistan? And then second, what is our long-term cost to leaving Afghanistan? And so, Matt, let me ask you a, a question, especially thinking as a political theorist here. Um, as a state, as a country, does, does America have a special role in the world? <laughs> oh, big question. Are we, are so, we a country for ourselves? Or are we a country for others? Matt, are mean? you a neoliberal? Tell me. Um, what, does it, what does it mean to be a shining city on a hill? <laughs> yeah. Um, right. So, I mean, obviously there's, there's sort of different theories of, of international relations and sort of America's role in the world. Um, there's an interesting discussion on that. I mean, personally, I, I tend to be sort of more of a realist uh, when it comes to these things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, nations, I tend to see nations as having interests um, and, and nations, you know, basically try to seek what is in their own interest. Um, yep. And and that said, I think there's also a place for American leadership in the world. Um, this doesn't, um, <laughs> and there's limits to that, obviously, right? Mm -hmm. And there's there's ways to to do that well and ways to to do that problematically. Um, I guess. <laughs> I I guess you know it, it's an unfair question. Say, say what? It's an unfair. I, I'm voicing. It's a completely unfair, unfair question. Unfair I guess. <laughs> okay. Let me let me sort of reframe this. So I think one of the things that's being sort of debated right now is like, well, we never really had a clear goal of what we were going to do, do when we entered Afghanistan. There was no sort of end game, um, and that was kind of kind of the problem with Iraq. But certainly, when we entered Afghanistan, it was no idea of like, what are we going to do to win this thing, right? And yeah. I think that's one of the arguments that. That has been made. I mean, was partially made by the Trump uh, Trump administration, who yep. wanted to pull out of Afghanistan, right? But yep. they never did. Uh, but also by the Biden administration. Like, well, we can never win this thing. Um, the military has never really told us how we can win this thing. Um, the goals have shifted, right? And so, because mm -hmm. we can't really win this um, this war, because it's not really winnable, we just need to pull out, right? Yep. And my thought is like, well, maybe maybe the whole point of being in Afghanistan isn't about winning a war, right? Because it's not 
like there's this war out there. There's this enemy that you have to, you know, ultimately sort of finally defeat. Maybe the goal is basically to manage the situation. And that's basically kind of what we've done. I mean, the U.S. policy in Afghanistan has shifted over the past 20 years. And, and yep. what we've had more recently is a situation in which basically U.S. is in basically mutually beneficial relationship with with the Afghanistani government, right? So basically the U.S. has troops there, can conduct some counterinsurgency, basically help out with training and provide some basic stability, which is good for the United States because it allows it allows you know us to work with um, the Afghanistani government to prevent you know terrorists from getting a safe haven. It also is good for um, Kabul because um, it allows them to basically um, maintain some sort of peace and stability and order. So it's sure. a mutually beneficial relationship. It's not nearly as costly in terms of money and and sort of the lives of troops as it once was. Um, and so it's not really a it it really hasn't been about winning a war in quite some time. So this idea that well we can't win this war and so we're going to get out I think is is starting from the wrong starting from the wrong place. Yep. Let me let me talk about politics in uh, in two venues. So this is a two act play. First is the politics in Washington. Uh, we've ha- uh, Joe Biden will be the fourth president to be part of the Afghanistan war, going from Bush to Obama to Trump and now Biden, and. Uh, there is a domestic benefit to ending foreign conflicts. It's not huge. It's not like he's doing this for electoral reasons, but being able to decommit the United States from Afghanistan would be a win in terms of costs. It'd be a win in terms of potential loss of, of, of troops' lives. Um, and it simplifies American uh, foreign policy. Um, at the same time, the question is how you go about ending this. And for three administrations now, going back to the Obama administration, uh, the Pentagon has been recommending what's been called a conditions-based approach, which was what Biden specifically rejected. And basically that means we can leave Afghanistan when some combination of the following things are true. Either the Afghani government is capacious enough and has enough military resources to fight the Taliban itself. Or the Taliban is so crippled that it doesn't need to worry about being beaten by the Afghani military. Or the country is stable enough that the two kinds of sides can reach some kind of power sharing agreement without killing each other. And then and once one of those things is reached, we can leave. And th- there's more nuance to those conditions, but that's basically what the Pentagon has been putting in front of presidents. And essentially, Obama didn't want to... Uh, go against those generals. And surprisingly, although Trump very much wanted to get out of the out of uh, Afghanistan, he didn't buck the generals on this either. It's Biden who's done so. And so essentially, Biden has said, I don't see us ever getting to any one of those conditions. The Taliban is strong enough and committed enough to fighting Ashraf Ghani and the Afghani government that they're never going to come to some kind of power sharing agreement. These negotiations are only going to string us along forever. The Afghani government doesn't want us to leave because we're a very reliable backstop for their security. Um, And that leads us to the second act of this play, which is the Taliban is more than happy to negotiate on their terms because we're not strong enough to defeat them but we're not uh, weak enough we're, we're certainly strong enough to keep them from taking over the country so they're content to wait until we get tired this is a war of attrition and they've shown themselves historically to be very good at fighting wars of attrition and so um the Taliban is is thrilled that Biden is pulling out uh, because they do have a really good chance of overthrowing Ashraf Ghani and the Afghani government, or at least forcing them into a very uncomfortable power sharing relationship as soon as the United States leaves, or perhaps within six months of the United States leaving. So the United States is basically saying what it should have said 
18 years ago, which is basically we've defeated Al-Qaeda. They no longer have the capacity to launch attacks at the United States from Afghanistan. And we're going to let Afghanistan deal with Afghani problems. And we're going to stop kidding ourselves that we can turn Afghanistan into a liberal democratic state in, the, um, in its region. So, yeah. So my question is, you know, if, I mean, you know, would, would the civil war that is likely to occur after the U.S. completely pulls out, assuming it still does, right? Because mm -hmm. these things have been walked back in the past. Um, is the civil war that is likely to occur going to result into a situation in which basically Afghanistan is back to, um, back to where it was um, circa year 2000? We're kind of back where we started. In terms of being a safe harbor for, for groups like Al-Qaeda. Right. Uh, I think the answer is no. And uh, the, 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 state, the state of play in the world has changed in two decades. Uh, Al-Qaeda no longer organizes itself the way it did back in 2000, which is in these kind of consolidated centralized training camps, by right? pulling people from all around the, you know, around the world to bring to, to central locations to train and then to send out. They're much more decentralized and they're much more franchised. Um, Al-Qaeda at this point is essentially a brand, not an organization. And so... Hmm. Um, Will terrorism increase in Afghanistan if the United States leaves? In some ways, yes, because there will the terrorism won't be focused on U.S. troops in Afghanistan, but there will be more conflict in Afghanistan between the Taliban uh, and the Afghani government. But it's probably the case that that terrorism will remain local, not extranational. We, this probably will not become the kind of place that trains terrorists to come and attack the United States. And that's why I ask you this, that unfair question about what's America's role in the world. <laughs> right. If America really does see itself as this liberal bastion designed to turn other countries into liberal democracies, then we are failing. But if America's goal is to keep the world as stable as possible and contain threats while at the same time economizing our resources, then pulling out is probably well overdue. Interesting. So, so you would say that ultimately the the benefits of basically saving money, saving lives, U.S. troop lives, right, outweigh any of the costs to increased sort of to cost the U.S. specifically. Um, cost, the, cost the U.S. I mean, I, I am fearful that um, a protracted civil war between the Taliban and the Afghani government the United States has helped to create will be bloody. Um, but it to be quite frank, if, if you're if you're a realist, and I think one thing that Trump and Biden have in common in this policy is a real realist bent, is it it, is, it might be bloody, but it's not our blood. Right. All right. Um, we should we should move on. Um, so so let let's 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 move on to sort of a different uh, different area of the world um, okay. and sort of a different potentially a different sort of. Um, issue within international relations. So I'm going to sort of lay out, um, lay out a theory and right. then, or sort of a narrative and you can sort okay. of blow it, blow it up and we can use this as an introduction to sort of discussing China and Russia. Okay. So, so as we turn our attention to the Middle East and to Russia and China, um, there's sort of a big question that we should be asking ourselves and, and there are various people asking this, not just me. Um, <laughs> are we entering into an era of sort of a, resurgence of conflict between great powers? Um, mm. Or more precisely, are we sort of returning to the sort of conflict that predominated um, most of the 20th century? So, you know, with the fall of the Berlin Wall, the fragmentation of the Soviet Union, uh, the demise of the Warsaw Pact, 
um, America's stunning success in the first Iraq war, basically we saw um, the U.S. really solidify its dominance as the global superpower, right? Yep. Um, and this era was was marked more or less by a lack of really serious geopolitical turmoil. There was no sort of um, impending sort of threat of mutually assured destruction that we saw during the Cold War era. Um, and of course, obviously, um, this this sort of decade of peace was shattered um, by, you know, the 9-11 terrorist attacks on the United States, which, of course, was the culmination of various other terrorist attacks that came previously and, of course, was followed up by more terrorist attacks. And so there was a real sort of shift in U.S. foreign policy. And the focus um, for the United States and some of its allies increasingly uh, became less on developing um, or you know, sort of maintaining um, military capabilities that could deal with um, basically very large scale um, conflicts, such as with you know Russia or China, and really more in developing U.S. counterterrorism and counterinsurgency capabilities. So the U.S. began focusing more on developing its weapons and also its strategies and its diplomacy um, to deal with these sort of asymmetric threats, right? Um, and so this involved, um, you know, less, you know, basically scaling down some of our ability to deal with large scale sort of traditional sort of armed conflicts with major state actors and dealing with, you know, terrorist organizations, right, um, or these sort of rogue states. And so we we saw the shift begin under the George W. Bush administration, um, you know, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld made some famous statements about forging a military that's smaller and leaner. Um, that could deal with these sort of threats in a more flexible way. Um, and it was thought that we had entered this sort of new era. Um, this is the end of history and, and yada, yada. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, during this time, China is is really modernizing, developing its capabilities. Um, Russia has sort of retooled um, and and grown stronger in some sense under, under Putin's leadership. And now there's a sort of a, the resurgence of, of a real threat of, of basically two large powers, especially with China, potentially literally making land grabs. Um, so we saw this with Russia and Crimea already. There is some concern that Russia is going to make a move on part of the Ukraine, that China is potentially going to make a move on Taiwan. And the question is, you know, what what is the likelihood of these scenarios? Um, what is the ability of the U.S. to do something about it? Um, and, and furthermore, what what approach should the United States be taking? So, yep. Chris, feel free to sort of blow up, blow up that narrative, and offer your own, offer your own take. How worried should we be, Chris? Because I'm, I'm becoming a little bit more worried about this. Yeah, it's worth worrying about, but I have some, some, some good news too. So, thank um, you, Chris. I, I knew I could rely on you for <laughs> for, uh, for some good news. Yep. Um, we're uh, this is not the Cold War, and it's also uh, thankfully uh, not 1935. And let me talk about both of the, or, or it's probably also not 1910. So let me talk about all three. So as I think about the- Certainly the, not 1910, but- As I think about the era right before the outbreak of World War One, the outbreak right before the era of World War Two, and then um, the Cold War, I want to kind of just say why this world is different. So first, the first thing is that Russia and China both present challenges to the United States. And in a, the security, uh, uh, we don't have a formal national security strategy from the Biden administration yet, but a security uh, supplement that just came out from uh, Biden's national security staff for the first time placed, uh, for the first time since 9-11, placed China as the number one uh, security threat in the world to the United States ahead of international terrorism. And that's correct. We sh And that should have been the case 
for a while now. The problem with these are politics. And if, if an administration is perceived at de-emphasizing terrorism, and then, God forbid, there's a terrorist attack, then all of a sudden it looks like you've dropped the ball. But frankly, China does present more long-term challenges to the United States. But the kinds of challenges China presents and the kinds of challenges Russia presents are very different. So let me break this down quickly. The United States by far and away maintains military superiority in the world. The United States spends more on its military than the next seven countries combined. And um, of those countries, five of them are direct allies of the United States. Now, China does spend the second most in the, in the world relative, uh, after, ever, after the United States, but um, China's spending is, is, is well eclipsed by the United States. China is starting to modernize their military, but they don't have the kind of global military power projection the United States has. So we're not entering into a military cold war with China. What China is focused on doing, and this is smart on their part, is a policy um, that has been known for years in the poli-sci community as anti-access area denial. What that basically means is China's not going to try to be able to put troops in South America or Africa or places the United States can frankly put troops if we wish to. But where, uh, what it is able to do is make life right around China's borders very difficult for anybody else who wants to go there. So China is very good at defending its interest in the South China Sea or the East China Sea, or potentially a conflict in North Korea, or potentially a conflict with India. This is where China excels. It's very good at um, it, the kinds of technologies it's invested in, whether it's anti-aircraft um, uh, uh, anti carrier technology, submarine technology, um, uh, artillery technology. These are the kinds of things China's very good at. So fighting a war with China would be extremely costly if we were fighting it close to them, which is probably what would be happening. Now, here's the good news. Fighting war with China is really unlikely. Uh, China is one of our top three trade partners in the world, and we probably would not easily give up China's uh, our, our, all the benefits we gather from China in order to fight a war with them. Likewise, China has no interest in us doing that either. They're too busy getting rich off of Americans buying their products. And so they're not going to want to fight a war with us either. So both sides have strong incentives to not move towards military escalation. That's good news for, a, for, a, um, for the island of Taiwan, uh, which is in this still awkward relationship with China, um, not quite de declaring independence, but at the same time, um, uh, remaining utterly distinct and, 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 and separate from China as well, and receiving U.S. military backing. China has recently tested um, Taiwanese resolve. Uh, they just flew uh, 10 military flights into, into Taiwanese airspace, basically seeing how Taiwan is going to react to this. And the United States will probably have Taiwan's back, but if there is some kind of miscalculation and all of a sudden there's military conflict and China decides to try to reunite Taiwan by force, would the United States willingly start a war with China to defend Taiwan's interests? This is a huge question for whom, whatever president uh, would have to face such a circumstance. Hopefully both China and the United States have the reserve to avoid that kind of question because of economic motives. Um, but, but this is, oh, Matt, go ahead, please. Oh, no, I mean, this is, this is interesting. So, so, I mean, to me, the, to me, the question is, you know, if it seems like if China is, thinks that it can successfully take Taiwan in one fell swoop and deal with the, you know, Pacific fleet, the American Pacific fleet that's there, 
um, and just take it successfully such that there's really no real opportunity for the U.S. to sort of take it back. Would China do that if they think it, it could it, it could actually accomplish that mission? And there's reason to believe that they are far more capable of accomplishing such a mission now than they were even 10 years ago. I mean, I was doing some 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 poking around and there are you know, some some think tanks um, which, you know, basically are looking at. Um, so like Rand Corporation has um, released some really interesting, like a really interesting breakdown of sort of China's capabilities um, in um, a variety of different sort of scenarios. And and the U.S. military has conducted various war games to sort of assess, you know, Chinese capacity. And basically, um, Chinese capabilities have improved very dramatically over the past 20 years. And basically, it's anyone's guess as currently as to whether or not um, the U.S. and Taiwan would be able to successfully repel a Chinese attempt to actually um, take over Taiwan and uh, Taiwan. And if and if they are able to successfully do that, is the U.S. going to have um, America people specifically are, are going to have the um, the political will <laughs> to do something yeah. about it? And I'm not sure the U.S. will. I think I think. Given sort of the long-standing agreement that U.S. has with Taiwan, I think there would be an initial attempt at defense. But if that defense is overrun, Taiwan is taken over. I would bet the U.S. is like, well, that's that. We're still trading partners, so we're basically going to overlook, overlook um, this this transgression by um, by the Chinese Communist Party to take over Taiwan, and basically things kind of resume as normal. And that would have all sorts of other detrimental effects. So. So the question to me is, does China think that it can successfully just deliver a knockout punch yep. um, with Taiwan? And if so they I, think they can, will they? I actually think that's not the right question to ask, because I think okay. you're right. They can deliver a knockout punch. If China decided they wanted to seize Taiwan, it would be bloody. Taiwan has a very capacious military. It's a very high-functioning um, high military system. Right. So it would not be simple. But... I think China does win that kind of conflict. My point is, I don't think China fights that conflict in the first place. Okay. Um, Taiwan's largest trading partner is already China. Um, and all of that trade, at least in the short term, comes to a halt if China engages in, in, a, in a conquest. And now eventually China might reap the benefits of a integrated Taiwanese island into their, into their economy, but they don't really need to. The Chinese economy continues to grow and it grows in excess of other major world powers, including the United States. Their, China is built to be a status quo superpower. If China does nothing other than what it's doing right now, it eventually becomes the most powerful country in the world economically, and if it chooses to, militarily. The question is how long that takes and how gracefully the United States acquiesces to that. And I don't think China has any reason to seize Taiwan. It might be the case that as if, if China sort of moves in the direction of becoming less communist and more of a capitalist authoritarian country, maybe at some point Taiwan decides a closer relationship is better than what we have right now. But that could happen years down the road after many after a lot of political changes. I just don't think that there's a I don't think China has an incentive to start a war with Taiwan and all the all the 
costs that would carry right now. That's different from Russia, by the way. So here's the difference. So hold, hold on. So oh, then, yeah, what, yeah, but what, so then sort of explain what what is the strategic value um, of all of the saber rattling, rattling right on the part of China with Taiwan, all of the all of the incursions incursions into Taiwanese airspace. Um, incidentally, there's been a lot of incursions into Japanese airspace and right. territorial waters as well. So what, what's right. the point of sort of the increasingly sort of and overtly sort of hostile um, hostile moves on the part of China. What what sort of value do they do they gain out of that? Perhaps. Good point. Um, I think it has uh, two benefits. Uh, one is direct. Um, Taiwan is a democracy. There is an internal political debate about their relationship with China, and China evincing a strong military presence is a good bargaining tactic. Um, if Taiwan thinks about you know doing something radical like declaring independence, um, so it's good. It's good for that purpose. It's also because the United States has begun to reach out to other regional players to attempt to hem in China militarily. The United States is responding to this anti-access area denial strategy that China has, and so we've reached out to the quad, which I almost always want to call the squad, but that's Taylor Swift. So um, <laughs> who's also very powerful at an international level, but not in the same way. Um, so the United States has been reaching out to democracies like Japan and South Korea and and um, and Australia. We've been working with India, essentially to kind of, kind of create a ring around China, which is what we did to, to the Soviet Union in the Cold War too. And this is a this is a way of sort of emphasizing China's military capaciousness in the South China Sea, even as the United States is trying to make these military bargains as well. So I think that's part of one of the reason it's happening. And it might just be good domestic politics. We've seen over the last uh, uh, decade, uh, Chinese nationalism is on the rise. What's heartening about that is that nationalism, that sense of Chinese superiority, hasn't carried with it a sense of international adventurism. So the Chinese people aren't willing to start foreign wars, or they don't say that they're willing to do so, even as they are more assertive of Chinese power. So... So is that, I mean, so you're going to go on to say that the situation between Russia and China is very different, but yes. you know, obviously, um, you know, the question is, you know, is Russian nationalism going to take a different form than let's say Chinese, Chinese nationalism, because yeah, I, it, I it is strong so. within both countries. Right. So maybe, maybe sort of explain, explain how this is going to manifest itself differently. Right. So maybe I'll, uh, without being too pedantic, let me go back to, to, to 1910. We had um, six, <laughs> six or so great powers in Europe, all relatively close in terms of power, but some growing faster than others. And essentially they all shared a similar spirit of nationalism, which was um, we're, we're better, our neighbors are worse, um, our unifying, our, the, the, the project of national unification requires that we do some vilification. And then there's essentially a powder keg that um, erupted with, uh, with the events of World War I. We don't have that now because there really aren't three great powers relatively equal in stature between the United States, Russia, and China. China and the United States have enormous economic power, but China lags behind militarily. Russia has a lot of military capacity in terms of its nuclear weapons. The rest of its military is somewhat stagnant, and um, its, its economy is a shell. Um, it's, it doesn't even crack the top 15. And so um, th there really isn't one country that matches the United States on both economic and military capacity to say nothing of alliances and to say nothing of diplomatic heft, which the United States has over both countries combined. So 
there is some ways to think the United States is still the preeminent power in the international system. But what Russia has different from China is a sense of nationalism, which is deeply invested in foreign adventurism, the reclaiming of lost Russian territory from the end of the Cold War and from the end of the Soviet Union. And that is its raison d'etre in Ukraine. That is what Putin has played upon there. It's what might happen in other places like Belarus or Moldova as well. And so when Russia seized Ukraine, uh, seized Crimea, from Ukraine back in 2014, this was basically the argument was this is Russian territory being illicitly held by the Ukrainians and we're taking it back. And the Putin remains very popular, mostly because he's seen as this strong leader who's able to stand up to uh, aggressive foreign powers like the United States. And I might add like Xi Jinping in China too. So, so let's maybe turn to the the situation between Russia and Ukraine because things yeah. have been heating up there. I mean things have been have been tense for the past seven years since the yeah. you know initial invasion in 2014 where Russia seized Crimea Crimea. So basically um, so what's going on currently just very briefly so the uh, number of Russian troops have been shifted to the border in the in the region with Ukraine, um, somewhere between twenty five thousand to, to fifty thousand. Um, there's been additional troop movements into the Crimean Peninsula and also um, elsewhere towards Belarus, um, and uh, basically there's this there's this concern that Russia might attempt to take another piece of Ukraine, um, especially the piece that's just north of Crimea, right? So Crimea is is highly dependent upon the Ukraine, um, not only for water, but also for natural gas, electricity. Yep. Um, and and basically, it kind of goes down <laughs> as, as conflicts between countries often boil down to is resources, right? And, and access to resources. So, so maybe explain sort of the likelihood of of whether or not Russia will attempt to take another piece of Ukraine. If you had to, if you had to, you know, I'm going to pull this, Chris, if you had to, you know, put this on a scale of zero to 10, <laughs> where zero is, it ain't going to happen in 10, it's going to happen. Um, will Russia make a move and, and take a piece of the Ukraine north of Crimea? Yeah. If, um, and I know how, and now I feel how much you hate it when I make you make these. <laughs> if, it's a, if it's a from zero, it's not going to happen to ten. It's definitely happening. I'm going to give it a six. I think this is more likely than not. I think there are ways to get Russia to back down, but I don't see U.S. leadership or European leadership pressing to get Russia to back down. Let me talk about the past that we have taken uh, and why that's a problem. So. Um, Russia took Crimea, which is a peninsular part of Ukraine, which is a, which borders Russia, which is also important because uh, Crimea contains uh, Sevastopol, which is a major seaport for the Russian Navy onto the Black Sea. So this is strategically important for them, as well as the fact that the people of Crimea are 90 to 95 percent native Russian speakers like they identify as Russian. Um, it was, in fact, Joseph Stalin who drew the line, the internal lines for the Soviet Union, who shuffled Crimea over to the Ukraine as a, a as a province of the Ukraine, and then they kept it when when the Soviet Union broke apart. But this was a uh, um, there's a case to be made that culturally Crimea is Russia. Likewise, some of the easternmost provinces of Ukraine now. People are predominantly Russian speakers, 80, 85% of people uh, native Russian speakers. So they may identify as Russian too, which has made life really difficult for Ukraine because they have 
um, essentially a population in their eastern flanks that are somewhat supportive of to use Vladimir Putin's term, little green men, uh, these sort of Russian soldiers who have all their insignia and markings removed, who are operating in the eastern provinces of Ukraine, essentially fo helping foment this ongoing insurrection against the U Ukrainian military. The Ukrainian military is not strong enough to stand up to this, but you know what they want to do? They want to join NATO. And so you, uh, the uh, pro-European government in Kyiv uh, of Ukraine have made um, overtures to, um, to NATO requesting sort of essentially fast-tracking membership into NATO, which would be very effective at deterring future Russian military aggression. Because if Russia starts a war with Ukraine and Ukraine's a member of NATO, then there are American troops in Ukraine and there are British troops and French troops all fighting against the Russians. And we do have a precedent of letting countries close to Russia into NATO. Um, that was what happened in the end of the Cold War, starting with the Clinton administration. We expanded uh, NATO membership to Poland and then Hungary and then the Czech Republic and then Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. And that was a part of what really motivated Putin to his current sort of foreign policy position of saying that that expansion of NATO was an insult to Russia. That was the darkest moment of modern Russian history. And Russia needs to reclaim its sphere of influence. And the, and the crown jewel of, Russia, of Russia's reclaimed sphere of influence is Ukraine in total. Russia doesn't have the capacity to take Ukraine in total all in one bite. That would be cause for direct military intervention, even if Ukraine isn't part of NATO. But what it can do is take little bites. And the easiest bites it has to take are in this easternmost provinces where the population probably already supports uh, Russian acquisition. So, so how much of this is, so there's maybe a few different explanations and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, but I wonder which one is more operative. So how much of this is an attempt to, you know, gradually sort of expand um, in bite-sized pieces, <laughs> to use your analogy, Chris. How much of this is an attempt to expand or reclaim parts of Russia's former sphere of influence? How much of this um, is driven by um, some of the problems that Putin is having domestically? Um, I mean, you stated that he was very popular, but I mean, he's also got some some serious opposition at home and, you know, a, a classic move. Um, um, whenever, you know, and this is true, not just in Russia, but elsewhere, a classic move is when you're unpopular at home, um, you basically create a foreign enemy, right? Um, or you, you have some sort of you know, foreign policy that turns attention away, um, that is going to be more popular, right? So how much of this is due to domestic politics? And then how much of this, um, is Putin testing the Biden administration? And that's another classic thing that we see is you get a new American president in, you know, the America, as you pointed out, Chris is still by far and away the most powerful country in the world. And, you know, routinely, um, you will see, um, authoritarian rulers or dictators sort of testing the resolve, testing um, sort of the, um, you know, the, the policy positions of the new American presidents, right? This is this has happened many times before. So if you have these sort of three explanations of what's going on, which one predominates or are they all playing a role here? Yeah, I'll be honest. Or am I just off my rocker and misreading this? You're not off your I'm rocker. Americanist. <laughs> because other people have said this too. So right. one of the things I heard in the last week was that 
Putin was massing soldiers on the border of, with the Ukraine um, in order to distract from the Alexei Navalny case. Now, Alexei Navalny is a Russian dissident um, who is opposed to Putin, who was poisoned by the Putin in the government while he was uh, living abroad. Um, he survived the poisoning. He's remained a staunch anti-Putin activist. And recently he traveled back to Russia knowing he would be arrested basically to kind of continue this personal protest. He has been sent in prison. He's in a very harsh Russian prison. And there's some rumors that he might have some chronic health conditions that might even be fatal. There's, it's, there's not a lot of, of clear news coming out of this. Um, but there's some thought that if Putin thinks that Navalny is about to die, he maybe doesn't want attention on his death being the top story, so he's doing something to distract. I actually think that whole story is bogus. I actually think that Putin feels confident enough in his leadership and confident enough in his public support that he can allow Alexei Navalny to expire in prison if he does. Um, I actually think the um, the massing of soldiers on the border with Ukraine is much more a um, geostrategic option, not a wag the dog kind of option. Now, the question is, is this more of a test of the Biden administration or is this more of a, um, a local power grab by, by Putin? I generally tend to think that Americans think too much of themselves in the world. And not everything is directed at testing our president. I do think that Putin is is very cagey. I don't think he's a great, I don't think he's been a long-term strategic thinker, but he's very good tactically. And so I think what he's basically said is, I think I can I can shave off a little bit more of Ukraine. Um, and I think that I can, if I do it in thin enough slices, the Biden administration won't push back in a way that really damages my ability to hold on to power in Russia. And so um, I think this is this is his attempt. He's, I'm going to put soldiers on the border. I'm going to see it, how Ukraine reacts to that. And if they react in sort of a milk toast kind of way, maybe I'll push it again. Maybe I'll move some of those soldiers into some of these certain provinces. And I can certainly trump up certain kinds of, you know, Ukrainian-led atrocities and say that I'm just moving in to protect Russian people. And because that's exactly what he did in Crimea. Um, then I think that that's probably what he's going to try and do. But this is an attempt to see what he can get away with rather than what he can challenge. Okay. No, please. So I want to ask, uh, so what's the, I mean, we kind of talked along the way about U, the U.S. interest in a particular region or situation. What, what, what is the U.S. interest here, right? So it may not be that the U.S. is particular in it, it, its interests are particularly harmed by, you know, uh, Putin taking another bite out of the apple, so to speak. Um, but, you know, of course, strategically long-term, you know, the more bites that are taken away from the apple, um, the more that undermines um, undermines the the credibility of NATO, perhaps, um, and and so sort of kind of game out for us, you know, what the long term implications of you know another bite being taken actually are, and what the U.S. interest in all of this is in, in your in your estimation, Chris. Yeah, it's the problem. I think for at least um, at least since the Obama administration, when the Crimea incident occurred first, is the United States has not given a um, a coherent justification for Russian adventurism. We sort of have this built-in from the Cold War suspicion of Russian revanchism, uh, sort of trying to reestablish its previously held sphere of influence during the Soviet Union, but we're not sure why we're saying why that's a bad thing. Obviously, Ukraine is a democracy. We want to support democracies. And so there's a liberal, a neoliberal argument to be made on behalf of Ukrainian democracy and territorial integrity. 
There's also potentially a geostrategic uh, issue in terms of um, natural resources. Uh, obviously, one of the things that flows through Ukraine from Russia to Germany is um, is natural gas and oil. And so um, this is about power in Europe and uh, Europe's industrial capacity. And so that's why Germany's invested in this. But what the United what, what United States hasn't said is why this matters. And I think it, ultimately it matters because we still see Russia as a as an opponent. It's an authoritarian government. Ukraine is not authoritarian. We don't want a democracy to fall under the sway of an authoritarian leader. Um, but is that going to be sufficient to get us to invest in Ukrainian security? So, what would it take to ward off a Russian um, attempt to, you know, bite the apple? Right. Yep. So, the Biden administration just today, um, Thursday, April fifteenth, has announced um, a series of uh, fairly heavy sanctions. Some of the heaviest sanctions that we've seen against Russia in actually quite some time: um, economic sanctions, um, sanctions um, that have to do with kicking out some diplomats, various others. It's a multi-pronged. Um, of course, Russia has predictably you know, denounced this, and so things are turning a little bit more frosty. Um, of course, will this be enough, or does the U.S. need to take a little bit more of an active role um, in saying, like, okay, the, the more troops that you amass on the, the border, um, or the, the more that you do, the more that we are going to do to support the Ukraine. Um, you know, maybe not direct military support, as in sending over, you know, a massive deployment of U.S. forces, um, but basically giving... Ukraine access to more weapons, right, or more funds, or doing other, other things. Um, you know, also bringing U.S. sort of European NATO allies specifically along um, to basically um, prepare for the eventuality that Putin could make a move, or just simply to to make that apple a little bit less palatable. Yeah, that, that's why uh, uh, Ukraine has been so, um, interested in getting a uh, NATO membership because right. it's a way of getting the United States to credibly commit to your Ukraine defense without sort of a sudden and essentially destabilizing move of putting us soldiers in Ukraine, for example. Right. Um, the problem is membership takes some time and there's not a lot of enthusiasm for letting Ukraine in for all the reasons we've just specified. So if we could, come up with some kind of other mechanism to show we mean business, some kind of other credible commitment, I think that would be welcome. I'll just throw this out there. Um, the, uh, Putin's rise to power and the revivification of the Russian economy has depended heavily on um, oil revenue. And because the price of oil is relatively low now, that has hurt the Russian economy, which I think makes them more susceptible than they might otherwise be to specific targeted sanctions. So if the United States was able to coordinate with Europe on specific kinds of sanctions, then I think that probably would be more effective than we expect. Yeah, and I, I've heard too, I mean, so energy, you know, international energy policy really plays into this as well. This is why there's been some interesting conversations over trying to make um, Europe, especially, I mean, Germany eastward, sort of less dependent upon not only oil, but also natural gas um, from Russia as well, because that is that is a, um, a very powerful sort of weapon, you might say, yep. um, that that Russia sort of wields over over Europe. And so, you know, there's various ways in which you could, you know, you could build pipelines, you can, I mean, there's been discussion of building um, very large um, liquefied natural gas terminals um, off of the Baltic Sea, potentially, um, where natural gas could be imported into Europe to make it less reliant upon Russia, which means that Russia would have a lot less leverage um, over Europe 
basically free, you know, some of those European allies up to, you know, basically where they would not necessarily uh, have nearly as strong repercussions, negative consequences, should they choose to to try to push back against Russia or take a firmer stand and and basically support Ukraine, for example. So, so energy policy is very much built into the geopolitical um, context of all. This. Absolutely. Well, um, anything else that we should that we should note about Russia? I mean, so clearly, Chris, you seem a lot more worried about the likelihood of Russia, you know, using, you know, smashing in and taking a piece of Ukraine than China yep. with Taiwan, you would say. At the end of the day, Russia is a regional challenge to America's ability to work with Europe. And, America, and the ability to sort of promote democracy in Eastern Europe. We've already seen sort of a, 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 retre a retreat of democracy in places like Hungary and Poland, and Russia is certainly applauding those kinds of things. And so that's the kind of the state of play there. In contrast, China is a global challenge. And China is a challenge economically as well as potentially militarily. And my prediction is 40 years from now, we're going to be talking a lot, lot more about China and a lot, lot less about Russia. Yeah. And we haven't even begun to talk, Sean, some of the other issues. And I know we're getting low on time. Some of the other issues revolving around China um, and, you know, we and, and sort of Taiwan's sort of economic role in the world as well. We can talk about sort of the the problems, you know, the supply problems that we have with getting microchips from Taiwan um, and yep, how... Absolutely. And, you know, we could talk about that. Um, you know, I think certainly at some point, and maybe we're running low on time today, and we can bracket, bracket this, is, you know, talk about sort of the, the, the Chinese sort of atrocities with the Uyghurs um, and ethnic cleansing um, that has occurred, you know, previously in Tibet and other places. And really the, um, the sort of serious, serious humanitarian problems um, and human rights violations in China and, and sort of maybe revisit some of the, so the, the discussion that you raised, Chris, like what is the U.S. role in the world, right? Should we chiefly be interested in sort of seeking our own interest, um, minding our own business, right? Um, or should we be concerned about um, other, you know, major powers committing serious human rights violations, especially when we have uh, a very close economic relationship with relationship right. with them what should be the role of that so maybe maybe we should do another ir themed episode oh perhaps. man if, you, if know. you're offering i'm taking this up because we could talk about <laughs> fiber, we could talk about um issues in um in africa we could talk about uh u.s uh, development policies oh there's so much more we could cover <laughs> yes and and it would be an education um for our listeners and also for me um so but we should probably probably wrap with that. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's fine. I, we got to run. So, um, Hey, thanks for listening to us. Um, thanks for listening to me a lot today. If you have questions, which you probably do, since I'm sure I said something today that didn't make sense, feel free to reach out to us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Um, you can also reach out to the station at channel 3900 at gmail.com. Make sure you subscribe to our station. We got lots of great stuff right now. Uh, bookish at Bethel has had some great episodes recently. Um, uh, um, Tweet Victory has gone international, and um, there's plenty of other things happening on the channel, too. So uh, please uh, subscribe and give us all a listen. Thanks for listening. Until we get into your podcast feed the next time, go Royals. Go Royals.